you have the Spirit of Christ, you have the Word of Christ, and so you have the mind of Christ. And the time in which we live, there's so much darkness, so much deception, so much foolishness. We live in a time where people can't figure anything out, and yet we know the truth. We have the Word of God, so we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray, and then we're going to continue in our study of the Word of God. Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Son, that the Father's wrath is completely satisfied because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that You've given us Your very own mind. You've deposited Your own mind into us by the Spirit and the Word so that we can now think the thoughts of God after Him. We can think about the truth. We can know and understand the truth. We live in such a foolish time, Father. Such a foolish time. So many arguments, so many debates about morality, about gender, about all of these various topics, but we have absolute truth. We're not a bunch of children babbling. We're not a bunch of uh, fools espousing our opinion. We have absolute truth from the God of heaven who is the absolute lawgiver and judge. And when we do that which is right, we know there is blessing. And when we do that which is wrong, we know there is cursing. And so, Father, help us to walk in Your ways. Help us to do Your will. Help us to speak, as our brother Jeremy mentioned in his sermon a few weeks ago, prophetically to the culture, speaking the truth to the culture, confronting them in their error, and confronting them with the power of the Gospel. We're speaking nothing, making nothing known, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what we want to hear today. Lord, that's what we want to hear this morning. That's what we want to see. We want to see a picture of our Lord and Him crucified for our sin. And I pray that You would help us to see that in the fullness of its glory. Amen. Alright, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We've finally made our way to chapter 2. That's pretty quick, isn't it? We were in Colossians 1 for probably six months. Maybe more like three, but we're only in 1 John 1 for about five weeks because that was, there was, only, there was only ten verses in chapter 1, so be mindful of that. There are 26 verses in chapter 2, so it'll take us a little longer. But 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to begin this chapter this morning, but this is really a continuation of the section that we began looking at starting in verse 5 of chapter 1, and it goes all the way to verse 2 of chapter 2. Uh, where the theme is about fellowship with God and sin. Fellowship with God and sin. So for this morning, the focus is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Uh, we know that this is a book of assurance. John's theme is Christian assurance. He writes so that we can have confidence that we're saved, that we have eternal life, that we know Christ. Uh, the heretics in Asia Minor were distorting the truth. They were propagating error. They were really presenting a counterfeit version of Christianity. They didn't deny Christianity, they just redefined it. That's the dangerous heresy. That's the most dangerous heresy. When people come to us and they say, oh, no, Jesus didn't exist, or no, it's about Islam, it's about Buddhism, we, we don't even buy into that. But when they say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus too, and then they sprinkle in a little heresy, that's the most deceptive form of false teaching there is. And that's what the heretics at Asia Minor were doing. Many of them started in the church, right? First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they would have been of us, they would have remained with us. So they started in the church, and they had a distorted view of Christ. They denied His deity and His humanity. They had a distorted view of sin and the law. They were living in sin and denying their sin. They were not marked by love for the brethren, and they were therefore upsetting the believers of Asia Minor, disturbing them. And so John wrote this letter toward the end of the first century for the purpose of refuting their erroneous ideas and to present a series of tests by which we can distinguish between the true and the false. The genuine and authentic from the counterfeit. The true believer from the false believer. The tests that John lays out in this book are in direct correlation to the heretical notions of the false teachers and they serve as the basics of the Christian faith. These are the ABCs of Christianity. The three tests that John lays out are these. It's the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. That is to say, the true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. Faith, obedience, and love. Those are the three tests that together form the litmus test of true Christianity. John presented the doctrinal test in the first four verses when he began by asserting the deity and humanity of Christ. 
Jesus is not a mythical figure. Jesus is not a mere man. Jesus is not just a good prophet. He's fully God and fully man. He's that which was from the beginning, and He was seen, heard, and touched by the apostles via the incarnation. He became a real human being. But then starting in verse 5 of chapter 1 and going all the way into the middle of chapter 2, John begins the moral test. He transitions from doctrine to morality. Doctrine to morality. In verses 5-10 through of chapter 1, we saw that true Christians walk in the light of holiness, they confess their sin, and they're forgiven of their sin. That's good news, isn't it? We're no longer slaves to unrighteousness, but we're enabled by God to live a life of obedience. And yet we still sin, but we can confess that sin and find forgiveness in the work of Jesus Christ. So that's the good news. But now, in verses 1-2 through of chapter 2, John is going to tell us the basis on which God forgives us of our sins. The justification for this forgiveness. Let me read our text starting in verse 1. 1 John 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There is a great problem that each of us have in this room this morning, naturally. A great problem. It's this. God is good. God is good. You say, that's, how's that a problem? God is good, we're not good. God is holy, we're unholy. God is just, we're unjust. That creates a major problem. The fact that God is holy, that He's separate from sin and a pure and holy being is the constant theme of Scripture. John emphasized that in verse 5 when he said that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is impeccably holy. He is completely righteous and there is no sin or unrighteousness in Him at all. No, not none. Right? Double negative John uses to go with a strong emphasis. There is no sin in God at all. So God is holy. But the Bible also often speaks about the reality of sin and human depravity. John mentioned the reality of sin in verses 8-10 through 10 of chapter 1 when he said, if you deny your sin, you are a liar and you are deceiving yourself. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a man on earth who always does what is right and who never sins. There's none good, no, not one. None righteous. All have sinned. All have broken the law. All have gone astray. None of us are born good. None of us are born neutral. We are, by nature, God-hating rebels. That is what we are. And that creates a huge problem. All of us have rendered ourselves guilty and unclean in the sight of a, an infinitely holy God. That creates a seemingly infinite chasm that needs to be bridged. So that's the problem. Christianity really solves the problem that none of the world's religions can solve. If you're here today and you want to know why you should be a Christian, this is why. Because you have this problem and no other world religion and no other world philosophy offers you any hope or any solution except the Christian Gospel. That is it. Listen, all men know God exists. All men know God exists because of creation and conscience. All men know the law of God because it's been written in their hearts and their consciences bear witness. And all men are without excuse. All of us are lawbreakers and we have no defense before the bar of God. And all of us sense that guilt. Every human being has a natural sense of his guilt. Our conscience is like a fire alarm. It goes off in the night. You don't just unplug it and go to bed. You look around the house to see if there's a problem. And if you ignore your fire alarm, you do it at your own peril, your own demise. Same goes with the conscience. You ignore your conscience, a God-given warning system, you do it to your own damnation. You do it to your own condemnation. So all of us have this sense of guilt. And every single world religion tries to solve the problem. Even atheism seeks to solve the problem. You see, Islam tries to solve the problem by asserting that you can be right with God by your good works. By what you do. By praying toward Mecca, serving Allah, so on and so forth. And that's what basically all religions say. Atheism tries to deal with the problem by getting rid of God altogether. The atheist suppresses the truth about the God he knows 
Because in his mind, that gets rid of the problem. If there's no God, there's no law, there's no judgment, I can do whatever I want. I can make this up and have a clean conscience as I do. That's why there are atheists in the world. No objective morality. I just do what I want. The problem with all these false religions is none of them offer you a real solution. None of them. You can deceive yourself all you want and say God isn't there, but God is there. It's like a man jumping off a building and saying there's no gravity. Find out how that goes for you. God is there. And you are going to stand before Him in judgment without any excuse. You can trick yourself all you want and say God's going to accept me on the basis of my good deeds, but friends, it will not happen. God will not be bribed by your good deeds. You can never be good enough. In fact, you're not good at all. You and I are corrupt and guilty in the sight of God. So the problem is, none of these religions offer a solution. What's the solution then? What's the solution? Well, it begins with acknowledging that there is a problem. Don't suppress the truth. Acknowledge there's a problem. Scripture constantly talks about this. In Job chapter 25, verses 4-6, through Bildad, the Shuhite, acknowledged this problem. He says in Job 25, starting in verse 4, How then can a man be just with God? That's the question. Friends, if you're here today, that's the question you need to consider. How can a man be just, be right with God? Then he goes on and says, Or how can a man be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that maggot and the son of man that worm? There's a true diagnosis of yourself. That's what we are. Dust balls in the sight of an infinitely holy God whose law we have offended time and time and time again. Bildad got it. Bildad understood the issue. How can any sinner be right with God? How can we be right with God? Earlier in the book of Job, chapter 4, Eliphaz the Temanite also observed the problem. He writes this, starting in verse 17 of Job 4. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? He puts no trust even in his servants. And against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Yet they die without wisdom. He got it. How can any frail, broken, sinful, wicked sinner ever be right with God? That's the problem. Until you feel the real tension there, you can't understand the Christian gospel. They got it. Bildad, Eliphaz, they got it. They understood that there is no way, humanly speaking, one who has broken the law time and time again could ever be right with an infinitely holy God. You see, God cannot compromise His righteousness and His justice. He cannot compromise His justice on the basis of mercy. He cannot compromise His holiness on the basis of grace. What would you think of a judge who had a rapist before him, a man who had spent his life raping and murdering women, and the judge said, you know what, I'm a merciful judge. I'm going to let this guy go free. What do you think about that judge? That's a wicked judge. He's not merciful. He's corrupt. He should be put to death himself. Justice demands it. And in the same way, God, who is infinitely more just than any human judge, can by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He says so himself in Exodus 34.7. How... Can you be right with God? That's the question. In light of the reality of God's holiness and human sin, how can any of us have a saving relationship with God? The answer is that our sin must be forgiven. If you and I are to be in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our sin must be forgiven. It must be dealt with. But how? How can God be faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, as John said back in verse 9? How can God forgive us in a way that is just without compromising His own holiness? The answer, we know the answer, the work of Christ, the cross of Jesus, the work of our Savior. And in this passage, John highlights the work of Christ by presenting to us the theological and the salvific and the legal implications of His work on the cross. We need to understand the death of Christ. He didn't die just as a martyr. 
suffering for righteous causes. He didn't die as just an example. He didn't die just as an expression of love. We need to understand the heart of the Gospel. And John helps us do that this morning. So now, somebody's still on my thunder over there. Now, there are two things to note in this text. Okay, Two things. John's desire and John's encouragement. John's desire and John's encouragement. First, John's desire. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John begins verse 1 by referring to this little flock as my dear children. My little children. It's a term of endearment, a term of love. John looks out at them and he loves them like a father. He has a parental love for them. He has a a ministerial love for the flock that God has given to them. And he learned that from Jesus, by the way. Jesus is the great model of love. And in John 13.33, Jesus told His disciples, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. Jesus considered His disciples as His own spiritual children. He loved them like His own. And John imitated Him. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. In Galatians 4.19, he referred to the Galatian believers as My children with whom I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you. That is the desire and the loving heart of any faithful shepherd. Any faithful pastor, leader, disciple maker. He loves those to whom he ministers like little children. That's how I care for you. I know that's a little strange, isn't it? Many of you are much older than me, right? We're not going to forget that. But in terms of spirituality, in terms of oversight, I love you with a fatherly parental love. And my desire is the same for your good. So John had a fatherly love for these believers, and that led him to desire the best for them. And he expresses his loving desire for them in verse 1. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's desire comes in the form of this purpose statement. Now remember, John's ultimate purpose is stated in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's ultimate purpose is assurance. He wants those to whom he writes to be confident that they are indeed in the faith and truly saved. But there are many sub-purposes throughout the letter by which that main purpose comes to fruition. And one of those sub-purposes is stated here, that you may not sin. John's desire is that those to whom he writes would be kept from sin. Would be kept from sin. Now, that implies that as true believers, we can avoid sin. As true believers, we can overcome sin. Not perfectly. We talked about that last week. If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. Yet at the same time, by the same token, if you're living in sin, the truth isn't in you and you're also deceiving yourself. Christians can't be sinless, but if they're really in the faith, they do sin less than they once did and they continue to grow in that pattern of righteousness. So John wants his readers to know they do have the ability to avoid sin. We know that great passage in Romans 6 says we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ and therefore can no longer live in sin. Paul says we're no longer under the mastery of sin because we're no longer under the law but under grace. And listen to this. Grace is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. You've got to get that. Grace is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Paul put it this way in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Did you hear that? Grace is not a license to sin. Grace does not promote license. Grace is instruction to deny sin, deny ungodliness, and it transforms the way we live in this present age. It doesn't just help us in the age to come. It changes our life in this age. So grace, as I said again, is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. It's the power to overcome sin and grow in righteousness. So John wants to motivate his readers to do just that, to avoid sin. Now what in this letter so far would motivate us to avoid sin? What is it that would keep us from sin? 
Well, the fact that ongoing, unrepentant, habitual sin in the life of a professing Christian reveals that he's not a Christian, that should keep us from sin. The fact that anyone who lives in the darkness of sin does not have fellowship with God should keep us from sin. The fact that increasing righteousness and decreasing sin is the mark of a true believer should keep us from sin. If you want to have assurance of your salvation, if you want to have confidence that you really know Christ, you need to avoid sin and pursue holiness. That's the evidence that there's a work of God in our life and He is changing us and making us like His Son. Holiness is the mark of a true believer. So that's John's desire for his flock, that they be kept from sin. And that's my desire for you. My desire for each of you this morning is that in God's gracious providence you would avoid sin, grow in holiness, and thus come to have assurance that you are in the faith. Is that you this morning? Are you having victory over your sin? Is your life marked by holiness? By increasing righteousness? Decreasing sin? I hope so. If not, then there may be a problem. There may be a problem. So brothers and sisters, in the fear of God, for our good, God's glory, and our assurance, avoid sin and pursue righteousness. So that's John's desire, that his readers do not sin. But as John himself affirmed in chapter 1, and as you and I know by way of experience, none of us can perfectly avoid sin. All of us have sin. So what's the solution then? What do we do about it? What does God do about it? How can we have any hope when we sin? The answer is... John's encouragement in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Look at verse 1 again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and we know from 1 John 1 that we will, we do sin. And when anyone sins, anyone falls into sin, it's okay. You're fine as a believer. You shouldn't sin. But when you do as a believer, you have hope. You, have, you can have encouragement because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the entire world. We, true believers, have a Savior. We have a Savior. That's the good news. And it's important to note here that the we is a reference to true believers, not just every professing Christian. Not everyone has a Savior. Not everyone can have this hope and encouragement. Not everyone is forgiven of their sin. John uses the pronoun we several times from chapter 1 verse 5 all the way to chapter 2. In verse 6 he uses it in reference to a false Christian, a false professor. He says if we say that we have fellowship with Him, in verse 6, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie. That's a false convert. One who makes a claim to faith but isn't in the faith. The we in verses 8 and 10 are the same thing. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. Verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Those who fall into that we category are not true believers. They are not forgiven of their sin. They do not have a Savior. And they can find no hope in this passage unless they come to Christ in real faith. But no one can claim forgiveness if he's not a true believer. However, the we of verse 7 and 9 is a reference to the true Christian. Those who walk in the light of holiness and confess their sin, they're the ones who have forgiveness. They're the ones who can make this claim and claim this promise. So John's encouragement is for true Christians who confess their sin, who no longer live in their sin, but when they sin, they have hope, they have forgiveness because they have a Savior. So John's encouragement then is centering on the work of Christ. We have hope when we sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. And John, in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, is going to present to us three aspects of that saving work. Three aspects of the work of Christ. We see His work of intercession, His work of obedience, and His work of atonement. His work of intercession, His work of obedience, and His work of atonement. So first, His work of intercession. John says, if anyone sins, we're forgiven. Why? Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. We have an advocate. Very, very rich word. The word parakaletas. The word means to come alongside and help. To come alongside and help. It, it can be translated as helper, comforter, consoler, intercessorer. It's from two words. The word para meaning close beside and the word kaleo meaning to make a call. Has that idea of someone being close enough to the situation that he can make the right call. It refers to a legal advocate who can make a judgment, who can give evidence that stands up in court. That's what a parakaletas is in the legal world. Now the word's used five times in the New Testament. Four times it's used in John with reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when He, the Helper, the parakaletas, comes, He'll help you. He'll lead you into truth. So the Spirit is our helper on earth. He's the one who comes alongside of us, dwells within us, and helps us live the Christian life. But here the word is used, I'm convinced, with, a legal, uh, with, with legal overtones. Here it is a reference to a legal advocate. John is saying this. John is saying when we sin, we're forgiven because Jesus is our divine defense attorney. Jesus is our lawyer our inter- intercessor. He's the one who pleads our case and our innocence before God. And He does it, notice, with the Father. He is our advocate with the Father. So the Holy Spirit's our helper, helper here on earth, but our Lord Jesus is our helper in heaven pleading our innocence before the throne of God. Isn't that amazing? Even when you sin the sinless God-man is in heaven with the Father pleading for your innocence. Even on your worst of days, as a true believer, Christ says to the Father, He's innocent. He's innocent. He's our divine lawyer. By the way, He's never lost a case. You know that? You've got a good lawyer maybe, but this is the best lawyer. He's undefeated in the courtroom. It doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any better than this. He's the best lawyer. He'll never fail. He'll never lose a case. John MacArthur puts it this way. I'm going to paraphrase. It's as if it's kind of a courtroom drama. It's as if God is the judge, Satan is the accuser, and every human being who's ever lived is on trial. Jesus is the lawyer who comes into the courtroom pleading the innocence of the sinner. He's our divine lawyer. Romans 8 puts it this way. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Amazing. Amazing. No one can bring a guilty charge against God's people that would ever stick because Christ Jesus is interceding for us and pleading for our innocence. Hebrews 7 puts it this way. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. We have eternal salvation because we have an eternal Savior who lives forever and intercedes for us forever at the right hand of God. So if you don't have Christ, you don't have an intercessor, you don't have a lawyer at all, you're going to stand in the courtroom guilty and corrupted pleading your own case before an omniscient judge You don't want to find out how that's going to go. I can tell you how it's going to go. You're guilty and damned. This judge has no injustice in him at all. Christ is the lawyer, the undefeated lawyer, who pleads the innocence of all of His people. Hebrews 9.24 says that Christ appears in the presence of God for us. It's amazing. Christ is even there right now. As I'm preaching in, in such sin, as you're listening with such a sinful heart, yet Christ is there if you're a believer pleading. And this advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. It wouldn't do any good to have just any advocate. We need a sufficient one. And this advocate, this lawyer, is Jesus Christ the righteous. Very strange way to refer to Him. In the Greek it literally reads like this, Jesus Christ righteous. Jesus Christ righteous. He's Jesus Christ. He's the God-man. He's the Messiah, the one that the Father has chosen, the appointed lawyer that God has chosen who saves His people. And He's righteous. He's the righteous one. 
which means he only pleads a righteous case. Not a guilty case. A, a good lawyer, a righteous lawyer, a just lawyer would never plead a guilty and sinful case. Jesus, as the perfect holy one, only pleads a righteous case. The difference is, in this case, his clients, namely us, sinners, are actually guilty. This, this lawyer is pleading the innocence of someone who actually is guilty. Now, how can he do that? How can he be said to be righteous if he's defending the guilty? That's where the rest of the work of Christ comes in, the other two aspects. And that brings us to number two, his work of obedience. His work of obedience. We see that summed up in just one word here. One word, that word righteous. This advocate of ours is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's not only the righteous one, but He's our righteousness. He is, as Jeremiah 23.6 says, the Lord our righteousness. He's the source of our righteousness. We stand righteous because we're clothed in His own righteousness. If God is to forgive us, we understand that we have to stand perfect before God. God will not compromise His justice. How can we be perfect? To be clothed in the perfection of another. In the perfection of a substitute. That's what Christ has done. Galatians 3.27 says that we are clothed with Christ. You don't want to stand before God in any other clothing than the clothing of Christ Himself. Matthew 3.15 says that He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled all righteousness. You see, friends, perhaps you've heard of the Christian faith and you say, yeah, I know Jesus died for, uh, for sinners. You heard that? But Jesus didn't just die for sinners, did He? What else did He do? He lived for sinners. He's not our substitute only in His death, but even in His life. He kept the law. For 33 years, He was perfectly obedient, tempted in every way as we. We find Him, the second Adam, in the, garden, or in the, in the desert, hungry, being tempted by the devil, and He stands. He overcomes. He obeys the law of God to absolute perfection. Why? So that that perfection could be given to us. So that He would legally accredit or impute His own sinless righteousness to the account of the believer so that we stand perfect before God. In chapter 3, verse 5, John says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. That's the kind of Savior we need. If our Savior was a sinner Himself, He could be no Savior. He would have His own sins for which to die. So we need a perfect Savior. One who can take away our sins. Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the kind of Savior you need. Jesus is that Savior. Perfect, undefiled, separated from sinners, sinless, tempted in every way as we, and yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19 puts it this way, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. How can you do that, God? How can you not count our sins against us? What judge does that? Because they were counted to Christ. Our guilt was legally accredited to Him. And then verse 21 puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul gives arguably the most succinct and yet profound summary of the Gospel in one verse. He says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's amazing. That's the Gospel. That's the great exchange. That God made Christ to be sin legally, who was never a sinful person, so that His righteousness would legally become our righteousness. The great exchange, our sin, for His righteousness. And this is the reason that Jesus can plead our innocence before the bar of God, before the judgment seat of God. Because He clothes us in His own righteousness. It's as if He says, Father, they're innocent because they are clothed in Me. They're innocent because I've given them my own righteousness. And therefore, we stand innocent before Him. Let me give you an illustration of this. 
There's a really good book that drives this point home. It's a children's book by R.C. Sproul. It's entitled, The Priest with Dirty Clothes. Priest with Dirty Clothes. And I'm going to give you kind of a, my version of that illustration. It is as if you're a servant trying to get into the kingdom. But the king will only allow those with clean garments in the kingdom. And your garments are filthy and muddy and dirty. The king would never let you in. But right before you're turned away, the son of the king himself, the prince himself, steps down, takes off his royal robes, clothes you in them, and takes your filthy garments upon himself. So now you're into the kingdom. That is what Christ has done. We have been robed in the royal garments of His righteousness so that we stand legally innocent before God. So that is Christ's work of obedience. That's where we get our righteousness. But what about our sin? What does God do with our sin? That's where the final aspect of Christ's work comes into play. That is His work of atonement. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus, our lawyer, our advocate, our divine attorney, can plead our innocence because He is the propitiation for our sins. Now what does that mean? What does that word propitiation mean? It's the word heliosmos, and it means an atoning sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that appeases or satisfies an offended party. John is saying that Jesus is the one who by His death on the cross satisfied the wrath and the justice of God against us. And thus, He turns the wrath of God away from us by His work on the cross. The word... Heliosmos is only used twice in the New Testament. Used here once. It's used in 1 John 4.10 as well. But it's related to another word, Helosterion. It's also used twice in the New Testament. And one of the times it's used is in Hebrews chapter, chapter 9, verse 5. And it's actually translated there as mercy seat. Mercy seat. Very interesting, isn't it? What is the mercy seat? You read about that in the Old Testament. The mercy seat is the seat on which the priest would pour out the blood of the sacrifice. The priest would take the animal, would cut its throat, and would drip its blood onto the mercy seat as a symbol of atonement, a symbol of satisfaction to divine justice. Very vivid. Very, very gruesome. What does it tell us? God goes to these drastic measures. What does it tell us? It tells us that that's what sin does. It calls for drastic measures. It tells us that God is so holy that the only way for wicked criminals like us to be forgiven is the death of a perfect substitute. And Jesus is that substitute. It's amazing if you read the Scripture how you read the whole Bible and it all points to one place, doesn't it? The glory of God and the cross of Jesus. Even these old mundane sacrifices in the book of Leviticus where we know Bible reading plans come to an end, even there we see the glory of the work of our Savior. Because He's the Lamb without blemish. The Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. And that is why, my friends, He can plead our innocence. He can say to the Father, they're innocent. I'm not hiding the fact that they're inherently guilty. Oh, they are. But they're innocent on two accounts. My righteousness is theirs. Their sin is mine. I've died for it. I've bore the wrath of God. And now I plead that they're innocent. And the Father is the one that planned this, by the way. He's the one that appointed the Son to be the, the lawyer. He's going to listen to Him. And so our case is one that can't lose if we're in Christ. Romans 3 puts it this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means all of us are guilty. All of us have broken the law. All of us stand condemned before God, but we can be justified. We can be declared innocent, not guilty, because of the redeeming work of Christ. Because in His death, He paid the penalty for our sin. He satisfied God's justice, and He turned away God's wrath so that we can now stand righteous before the judge. 
Why? Why did God do that? Why the bloody, gory, horrific sacrifice of His own Son? Romans 3 verse 25 tells us. Paul says this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why. The sacrifice of Christ proves once and for all that God is just and yet forgiven the sinner. God is just. There is no other way. If you're here today outside of Christ, you have no hope unless it's Christ. Unless you come to Christ. There's no hope. You st- Do you want to stand before God in your own righteousness? Do you want to plead your own case before the God of heaven and earth? Friends, it's going to go very badly. Christ is a perfect Savior. He is mighty to save, sufficient to save, and He will make you perfect before God. Remember, chapter 1, verse 9, John says that this is a just forgiveness. That God is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us. But how? You know, we live in a culture obsessed with the word justice today, don't we? We know the mantra cry, no justice, no peace, right? We hear it every day. They have a skewed view of justice. They don't realize that true justice damns every person to hell forever. And the only solution to that problem is the satisfaction of God's justice by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our divine substitute. Taking our place. That's it. There's no other solution. No religion, no philosophy, no labor of your own, no work of your own hands, no, gen- no sincere tear will ever get you there. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong and go to hell. And that's not what I want for you. That's not what you want. Christ is the sufficient Savior. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. That's the Gospel. That's the Christian Gospel. The substitute. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us into the presence of a holy God. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. Because you need to realize, Jesus didn't just die as a martyr. He wasn't an example. He was an example, but not just an example. He wasn't just an expression of love. He was a bleeding substitute who saves us from everlasting burnings by His atonement. Isaiah puts it very well. Isaiah says this, All of us like sheep have gone astray. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging we are healed. Each of us has turned to His own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. In verse 10 he says, It pleased the Lord to crush Him. You know who killed Jesus? It wasn't really the Romans or the Jews. They took a part in it, obviously. It was God. God slaughtered His own Son. Why? So that you and I could escape that judgment. He took the place. Romans 5.9 says, Having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. The Gospel is not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not that God loves you and wants you to be happy. It's not that God promises you health, wealth, and prosperity. It's this. This is the Gospel. You are guilty. God is holy. His justice demands your damnation. Christ stood in the place before the wrath of God, satisfied that wrath, and all who are in Him are forgiven and right with God. That's the Gospel. We are forgiven on the basis of the redeeming, propitiating, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Can you just see Him there? The sinless One. The One who never did wrong. You do wrong every morning. You and I can't even think of thought that isn't sinful. And this One was perfect for 33 years. What did He deserve? Glory and honor and praise. But what did He get? Condemnation. The very condemnation that we deserve so that we could be delivered. That's the good news. 
Do you see His glory, friend? Is there anywhere we can look and see a more glorious picture than the cross? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No better place to look. There His mercy and His justice meet. His love and His wrath kiss. And there is perfect harmony in God's justice and God's forgiveness. May we meditate often on that glorious Gospel. John adds here at the end, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By the way, that does not mean that everybody said. Right? doesn't mean everybody said. It does not, nor can it mean, that Jesus made a real satisfaction for the sins of every person. It can't mean that. Because if it does, then why, does, why do people go to hell? Why do some people go to hell? That would be double jeopardy. You have Christ paying for the sin and you have the sinner paying for the sin too. That makes no sense. Christ couldn't have made a satisfaction for the sins of every person. The word world doesn't mean that. That's a wrong interpretation. You know how I know that? John uses the same word in about eight verses. 1 John 2.15, you know what he says? Do not love the world. Now, does John mean by that don't love every person? No. The word world has a context and the context determines what it means. The context determines what it means. If you're going to say that Jesus made satisfaction for every, that He's the propitiation for every person, you're going to have to be a universal. You're going to be a universal. You're going to have to say that everyone is saved. I don't think you want to go there. Or you can be an Arminian. Arminians are inconsistent. Arminians say, oh, Jesus made a potential atonement. A poten-. That's not what John says. John doesn't say He's the potential propitiation for the sins of every person. He says He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He made a real satisfaction for whoever this world refers to. Real satisfaction. Jesus' atonement was not a potential atonement activated by the sinner. It's a real, actual atonement applied by the Savior. It's effectual. This is the doctrine, we call this limited atonement. We'll talk more about this when we get to the confession, by the way. It's the doctrine of limited atonement. You could also call it particular redemption because Jesus died not in general for every person, but in particular for the people that God had given Him. Limited atonement. And it might help if I say this. The atonement is both unlimited in two ways and limited in two ways. It's unlimited in two ways and limited in two ways. It's unlimited in its sufficiency and in its offer. Okay? You got that? There is nothing lacking in the work of Christ in terms of its sufficiency. The work of Christ is sufficient to save everyone whom the Father gives to the Son. And the work of Christ is unlimited in its offer. Okay, It's unlimited. It's offered freely to everyone who hears it. No one goes to hell because Christ's work is insufficient. They go to hell because they've sinned against God and they reject the only sacrifice for sin. But it's offered freely to all who hear it. But the atonement is limited in two ways. It's limited, first of all, in its application. And just about everybody in the world of Christendom would agree with that, except for universalists. It only applies to the elect, or it only applies to those who repent and believe the Gospel. But it's also limited in its intent. The atonement is limited in its purpose. And this is what we really mean by limited atonement. That is to say, Jesus died for the purpose of saving not every person, but the elect that God has chosen and given to Him. Jesus died to save the elect. In John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then you know what He told the Pharisees? He said, you're not my sheep. He says, you do not believe Me because you're not my sheep. Notice what He didn't say. He didn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He said, you can't, you, because you aren't my sheep, you don't believe. See that? It's not that they aren't the sheep of God because they haven't believed. It's that they can't believe because they're not the sheep of God. Christ laid down His life for the sheep, not the goats. So Jesus died a real, effectual, atoning death for His people. Remember, Jesus is both our advocate and our atonement. He makes intercession and He dies for us. And in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, He says this, I ask on their behalf, talking about the disciples, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. You hear that prayer? Jesus says, I don't don't pray for everyone in the world. I pray for those you've given me out of the world. 
And Jesus dies for the very same ones for whom He intercedes. His advocacy is consistent with His atonement. Jesus intercedes for those the Father has given Him, and He died for those whom the Father has given Him. And He saves to the utmost all of those who are given to the Father. So what's John saying here? He's saying that Jesus' propitiation is not just for Jews. It isn't just for John and his readers. It's for the whole world. All of God's elect, all believers, all over the world, both Jew and Gentile, are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. He died for Jew and Gentile all over the world. Not just a small minority of people in a certain ethnicity, but for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, God has chosen a people out of those various ethnicities, those ethnos, those nations, and Christ died for those people whom the Father chose. Which means if you're here today, you can take heart. You can find encouragement in the fact that if you're a Christian, Christ died really for you, not potentially, really died for you, and He made a real satisfaction to the justice of God that was against you. And even if you're not a believer today, you can take heart in the fact that if you come to Christ, He will not turn you away. He will not cast you out, but you will find perfect forgiveness in Him. Because for His people, He pleads our innocence, He gives us His righteousness, and He pays for our sins, satisfying justice. That's the good news. His work is sufficient for you today, friend. It's even offered to you today. And if you come to Christ, if you're not in Christ already, come to Him. You will find Him to be the perfect Savior. A sufficient for He's mighty to save. That's John's encouragement. The work of Christ. Is that where your hope's at this morning? Is your hope in the finished work of Jesus? I hope so. None of those who trust in Him will ever be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have a sufficient Christ. We know, Lord, that our good works would never do. Our sinful efforts would never work. Our greatest sincerity, our best prayers, all of our intellectual knowledge, all of it is vain if we do not have Christ. Because Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. We're thankful for His righteousness. We're thankful for His atonement. And we're thankful for His intercession on our behalf that He pleads our innocence before the throne of God. And on that basis and that basis alone, we stand not guilty and justified before the judge. I pray that each of us as Christians would find our delight in that. Our identity in that. No matter how bad of a week we've had, no matter what job we have or have lost or don't have, what dreams we have that haven't come to fulfillment, we have all that we need in Christ and are clothed in Him. And that is our sufficiency and that is our contentment. And for those here this morning who haven't come to Christ, I pray that you would draw them now, that they would see themselves before a holy God melting before Him like wax under His judgment, about to be condemned forever and that Christ is the only one that can swoop in to save them they would trust in Him today. Continue to grow us, build your church, honor your name for the glory of the Savior. Amen. Alright, if you have your hymnals...